open your Bibles up to the first chapter of James. We're actually going to look at more than the first chapter, but a lot of what we're going to look at tonight comes from that first chapter of James. I'm starting a new series, Sermons from Jesus' Little Brother. I actually think the traditional view is correct, that this is written by the younger brother of Jesus Christ, the brother of our Lord. Uh, And I think it's one of the earliest pieces of our New Testament. I think it's as early as uh, some of the later letters of Paul. James died in about 62, the year 62. And I think this letter is uh, considerably earlier than that. What do we know about James? Not a lot, but there are several details from Scripture to, to kind of fill in a few of the gaps. We know that Jesus has four brothers who are named in Scripture. James is named first. There are three others named in Matthew chapter 13, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, or Judas. Um, we know that the brothers and mother of Jesus, at least one of the times during Jesus' ministry, thought that Jesus was crazy or was out of his mind or was being driven crazy by the crowds. That's one of the reports we get in Mark chapter 3. Uh, Jesus' uh, mother and brother, they come because the crowds are so overwhelming, Jesus and the disciples can't even eat, and they come to take control of him because they're saying Jesus is, is out of his mind. Uh, we know that in John chapter 7, some of us studied that this morning in our Bible classes, uh, we are told that the brothers of Jesus, and that includes James here, didn't believe in Jesus, at least while he was carrying out his ministry. And yet we're also told in Acts chapter 1 that the mother and brothers of Jesus are among those who join in Jerusalem after Jesus has been resurrected, after he has ascended into heaven. They are among that 120 who are waiting in Jerusalem, waiting for what's going to happen next, which turns out to be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and the preaching of the gospel and the beginning of the church. James... The brother of Jesus ends up being a crucial elder in the Jerusalem church. Paul says, when I went down to Jerusalem the first time, I didn't meet with anybody except Peter, oh, and James the Lord's brother. And when I went down the next time, there were three main pillars of the church who shook my hand and said, we'll go to the circumcised, you go to the uncircumcised. The three pillars that he mentions are Peter, the apostle John, and James, we know the Apostle James was already dead by then, so we're certain that this is James, the brother of Jesus, that Paul was talking about. And James actually becomes famous in his own right. Josephus, actually, the, the Jewish historian, uh, Josephus actually writes. He's the one that tells us and gives us our best date for James's death. He's the one that records this event. Essentially, you guys, in the book of Acts, there's one of the governors that Paul has to deal with. One of the governors of Judea is Festus. When Festus gets kicked out of office, but before his replacement can get into office, there's a little period, a gap of power, and the, the high priest at that time takes that moment where there's no real Roman authority, and he convenes a court, and the first thing they do is condemn James to death, and they stone James. That, that, that happens, we believe, about 62, based on the two governors and the history we have of them. 
In fact, the Roman governor is so angry, Josephus says, when he finally does get in power, uh, one of the first things he does when he finds out about this is he removes that high priest from power. There may be more politics going on about that, but that's the way Josephus tells the story. And so James is very famous. One writer, a later writer, Hegesippus, says he prayed so much that he, his knees looked like a camel's knees. I don't know what that would even be like, except really calloused, like, you know, built up calluses because he was on his knees so often. And even the Jewish, the non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem viewed him as a righteous man. A lot of them were angry at what the high priest had done. Okay, so that's the background of the book that we're looking at here. Uh, the story of the, the book that James wrote. I think he is, we are getting an insight into the kinds of sermons that James, the brother of Jesus, would preach. I think these are sermons, or the echoes, into, translated into Greek, of the sermons James would preach to the Jerusalem church. We don't know much about the Jerusalem church. People, uh, you know, the, the, the apostles get scattered and, and they go different places. The Acts of the Apostles mainly focuses on what Peter does and what Paul does. So we don't get a lot of detail. I actually think we can read between the lines and learn something about the Jerusalem church and about what was going on in Judea and what were the struggles, what were the things that they were having to work on, what were the things that the congregation was having trouble with, and what were the kinds of things that uh, somebody who gave lessons to them regularly would try to encourage them toward. And so that's what this series is going to be about. I'm going to extract from the book of James some of the main things that James wants to focus on to encourage that church about. Now, this book is written in Greek, and so like I said, I think it's an echo. I think uh, James wrote it or dictated it. And uh, we are getting an echo of those sermons that he preached. What's his first concern? What is the very first concern that James brings up? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that I have a hard time understanding. This is definitely in my top three. Consider it pure joy. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face various kinds of trials. Uh, Why? The whole point of a trial is it's not joyful. Why does he say consider it joyful? How could that possibly be something that's joyful? Well, he doesn't mean all of y'all need to flip some switch in your brain so that stuff that other people find painful gives you some kind of weird buzz. Okay, he doesn't say become a masochist or something. What's he saying? Well, verse 3 Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing or not lacking anything. 
And just for fun, skip down to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Scholars point out uh, that James is really interesting to us because it's got a ton of echoes of the preaching of Jesus. Now, we don't think James was much of a believer during Jesus' lifetime, but he heard Jesus preaching, and there are a lot of echoes of Jesus' preaching in here, but the way James quotes them and the way that he alludes to them sounds somewhat different than the way that they're quoted in the Gospels. It's like we're getting to another pure source of the teaching of Jesus. If you persevere, if you hang on, then you get the harvest. Then you get the final product, the crown of life. Is there any parable that Jesus ever told about how Christians persevere or don't persevere? You remember any parable like that? Probably you can think of two or three. The one that I think of is the parable of the seed and the soils. Sower goes out to sow. So what happens? Some of the seed falls on the, ground, on the path. It doesn't even get to germinate. Because why? Birds come. Just take it away. He says, that's, that's people who their hearts are hard, and Satan comes and takes the word away before it even has an effect. Some of the seed falls among the weeds. Some of the seed falls in the stony ground. What do those represent? You remember what Jesus said? Y'all are allowed to talk. It's okay. Yeah, the, one of them is the, care, the weeds represent all the stuff of this world. You want to have faith. Your faith kind of starts growing. All the stuff that's going on in this world just sort of gradually saps all the energy that should be going to your Christianity, and, and eventually you've got nothing left. just chokes it out. What about the stony ground? You remember that one? Yeah, that's right. That's a person who doesn't sink any roots down into the faith. And when the real hardships come, when the real difficulties come, they don't have any real rootedness and they wither away. But then Jesus says, but the seed that falls in the good soil, it grows and it multiplies. And you don't just get one seed back when that happens. What do you get? Oh, you get 20. You get 50. You get 60. You get 100 back when that takes place. I think James remembers that. I think James knows what he's talking about. He says, you, Christians, how could it possibly be a good thing when bad things happen to you? How could it be? It's not fun to go through hardship. But if you endure hardship, God can use that to bring into your heart this ability to grow up and produce the harvest and to receive the reward, the crown of life. Just based on that, if all we had were those first four verses plus verse 12, what kind of guesses would we make 
about what James had to preach to in the Jerusalem church. What kind of things are going on in the lives of the Jerusalem church that needs this sermon? I think that we can be sure that they were facing persecution. Who was persecuting them? I think the non-believing Jews would be a source of persecution. It's possible the Romans were, but most likely it's the non-believing Jews that are a source of persecution. So that's one reason. What else? What are some other things you think might be a hardship that they have to face if James has to preach, and I suspect he had to preach it on a regular basis, persevere, hang in there, the crown of life is coming, you'll just hold on. What other things? Pardon? Yeah, just straight up temptation. The ordinary kinds of temptations that all of us face. Just to fall away. To just to say it's not worth it. And to just give back in to the world and all the things the world asks us to do. And I think we can imagine a couple of others because we share them as well. I think the people, the ordinary people, and a lot of the people who joined the church struggled and continued to struggle with poverty. One of the few quotations we have from James when he's talking to Paul is he says, you're going out there to preach to the uncircumcised. Remember the poor. Remember the poor. Remember the poor, Paul. If you make converts in Corinth, if you make converts in Macedonia, if you make converts in Troas, if you make converts anywhere, remember the poor. I think we can imagine that the Jerusalem church, not everybody, I'm sure, they had their Barnabases, obviously people with wealth, but a lot of the Jerusalem church continued to struggle day in and day out with poverty. And there's another thing that we are sure the Jerusalem church struggled with and required Christian perseverance. And that is political oppression. Same thing the non-Christian Jews struggled with, the Christian Jews struggled with. Who was running their country? People who cared about them very much? People who wanted, oh, I want you guys to get a fair deal. No, no. They were suffering under political oppression. They were suffering under people who all their loyalties were to a different country. They didn't care about the race of the Jews. The people who ran things looked different and acted They didn't care. And so here's James, week after week, he and the other elders getting up and teaching and preaching to this church. What do you say to people who are poor, and have to struggle with that day in and day out, who are oppressed and feel you know, the weight of injustice and, and not having any much ability politically to do anything about that day after day, who are persecuted, who are kind of despised for what they're doing that's right. They see people who are unjust getting ahead. They see people who are hypocritical getting ahead. They see people who are less righteous than they are, having more wealth than they have. That's what James is talking about when he says, but if you persevere, God will give you the crown of life. If you can hang on. 
And in fact, it's so important to develop this characteristic, this maturing within you, to be able to persevere. It's so important that even when bad things happen to you, you can be happy about it. You can have some joy in that because you know that's part of the process of developing your ability to continue on step by step until you actually do receive the reward God has in store for you. I don't think there are any books in the Bible that are, you know, unicorns and rainbowy, if you know what I mean. We can go to the bookstores and we find books that are just kind of airy-fairy and everything's wonderful if you just have a positive attitude. There aren't very many books in the Bible that are like that. One of the ones that is least like that of all is this book. James, I mean, I just, as an experienced minister, I just, I just feel his ministry almost in every word. He was dealing with real people who had real problems. They had real resentments. They had real anxiety. They had real fear for what was going to happen in the future. They had real things that they were struggling with. And so his first sermon to them, I think, is hang in there. Persevere. Even when bad things happen, use that to make yourself even stronger, to let God buoy you up so that you will persist until you receive the reward that God has in store for you. If you've got your Bibles, just flip over to chapter 5. I'm skipping over a couple of other things that I think probably address this topic, but but I can't look at everything. Look over at chapter 5, down at verse 7. James chapter 5, look down at verse 7 through 11. It's another piece of what I think James would preach about perseverance and about patience. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, You too, be patient, stand firm, because the Lord is coming near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you too will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. And you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I like this because James just sort of throws out there three examples of patience, three different kinds of examples of patience, and each one kind of is facing a different direction. What kind of patience and perseverance and vision of the future does a farmer have to have? What does a farmer have to be patient with? Have you ever, I'm serious, I've asked this question before. Have you ever met a farmer who's totally happy with the weather? I mean, I don't care if it's a perfect season so far. They're going, yeah, but the weather report for the next two weeks is just, you know. It's always slightly too much rain, slightly not enough rain. They say, well, yeah, but it's not looking good down. A farmer just lives day by day. On whether or not the weather conditions are going to be right. Is it, is it going to be the right amount of moisture? Is it going to be the right amount of sun? Is something else going to happen to my crops? You, I've risked everything on this. 
So this is a good illustration for James to use. I, I doubt that most of the people in the Jerusalem church and the surrounding churches were farmers, but it's a good illustration. They all knew what he was talking about. This is patience directed at the circumstances of the world. Patience directed at the kind of stuff none of us really have any control over. You remember any teachings of Jesus about this kind of patience? Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't be anxious. There's so much stuff you can't control. You can think and think and think and think and think, and you can't make your life one day longer. You can't make one hair on your head turn from white to black. If you could, man, I would have already done it a long time ago. I mean, there are chemicals that can do it, but I can't by thinking make that change. There's so many things that are just beyond my control, and I have to endure them when they're bad. I have to, I have to be patient with them when they're bad. And so James is just dealing with the reality that all Christians are going to deal with. Sometimes we're going to get sick. Sometimes the people we love are going to get sick. Sometimes the economy's going to be bad. Sometimes it's going to be better. But even when it's better, we're going to go, yeah, but it's going to get bad again. Well, I mean, uh, we have to put up with that. Sometimes we're going to like what's going on politically. Sometimes we're just going to hate what's going on politically. All of that stuff is way beyond our control. And it requires, among many other things, it requires perseverance, patience. The next example he gives is what? He says, prophets. Think about the prophets. Who are the people that we look back in the Old Testament now and we praise? We love Isaiah. We think Isaiah is awesome. We love Jeremiah. We think Jeremiah is great. How did people think of Jeremiah at the time? You traitor. You're sapping people's morale. We need to be telling people they're going to win. We need to be telling people that the Babylonians are just a paper threat. We need to, and Jeremiah's up there going, ah, uh, yeah, the Babylonians are going to kill us. And once they kill us, we're not coming back for 70 years. They put him in a sewer. They just said, hey, enjoy that for a while, traitor. But who do we call faithful now? Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos. People who were willing to face that kind of persecution. I think this is a good example of the second kind of patience that I know James had to preach about to the Jerusalem church, which is somebody's already mentioned. Persecution, facing persecution. You're doing the right thing. You're believing the right things. And because of doing the right things, people have you in their sights. People have you in, your, in their crosshairs. People hate you. And people make up all kinds of stories about you and the group you belong to. And just say all kinds of stuff about you that's not even true. Jesus say anything about that? Again, I think we hear one of the echoes of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says, in Luke, the version is, woe to you when everybody talks well about you. And blessed are you when people persecute you and speak evil against you because of my name. Christians have always had to deal with that. Christians will always have to deal with that. One of, the, one of the parts of the life of Christianity, if you're a real Christian, if you're really standing up for Jesus, 
there are going to be people that for that reason alone hate you. That for that reason alone cannot stand you and will speak against you. And that calls for patience. Then the third example, he just tosses off, James does, is Job. Remember Job. You've heard about Job's patience. The patience of Job. That's always really interesting. We use the patience of Job as a proverb. How patient was Job? (laughs) Uh, Most people who talk about the patience of Job haven't read Job. James had read Job, and he knew all the things that Job said. Job said, God is afraid to meet me in court. I would If God would show, I would march up to the judgment bench with the record of my life on my left shoulder and on my right shoulder. And I'd just kind of dare him to pronounce what my sin is that is worthy of all this suffering. Uh, That's what he says at one point. He says a lot of other stuff too. But what does he never say? He never curses God. His wife tells him right in chapter 2, says, why are you so, uh, we usually translate it, why are you holding on to your integrity? But it's kind of like, why are you so stubborn, Job? Why are you so, why are you sticking with this? Just curse God and get it over with. God doesn't love you. Why should you persist in trying to obey God and follow God? Curse God and die. And Job answers, he says, look, you're talking like one of the foolish women of the land. Should we receive good things when God gives us good things, but then when he gives us bad things, reject it? It all comes from God, and we receive both from him. And the writer says, so Job never sinned with his mouth. He never sinned with what came out of his mouth. That's the patience of Job. And this is patient. This is interesting. This is something we don't usually talk about much in church. This is my ability to persevere God, to be patient with God. And we don't talk about that much in church. Are you ever mad at God or frustrated with God or just puzzled by God? Well, if you are, we don't make it very easy for you to talk about that, that's for sure. All of us are liable to let you say maybe a sentence or two about that before we cut you off. I mean, and I'm guilty of that too. But the fact is, if you live a real life of faith, sometimes what God is doing in your life is going to be so strange or so painful to you that you are going to be angry with him like Job was. You're going to be frustrated and you're going to be puzzled. Just, I don't understand this at all. And that requires, among many other things, perseverance, patience. That's what James is preaching to his church. He knows they need it, and we get the echo today. We need it as well. Sometimes that's going to be true. Right in the middle of all that, look at verse 9. Right in the middle of all that, you know, great example. This is what the farmer's like. And this is what the prophets are, and Job's patience. Right in the middle of that, what's verse 9 about? It's just so weird. 
Don't grumble against each other, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Why in the middle of a long argument about suffering, suffering the things that the world does to you, suffering the things that persecutors do to you, suffering even when you don't understand what God is doing and allowing in your life, why does he suddenly say, oh, and by the way, in church, don't turn on each other. We, wouldn't, we might not think of that as logically following, but man, is that true to human nature and to real church life. When, even a pretty peaceful church, when is a peaceful church even likely to kind of start aiming its guns inward at each other? One of the times that's likely to happen is when external circumstances have become particularly painful and hard. When am I likely to make a mess of my relationship with you, my brother and sister, in this church? Oftentimes, it has nothing to do with what you did. You're just doing the same thing you did before. But I've become really in a painful situation. Bad things are happening in my life. Maybe something bad's happening in my marriage. Maybe something bad is happening with my relatives. Maybe something else bad is going on. Job's in jeopardy. And that comes out with me lashing out at you. And so it's as realistic as it can be for James to include this at this moment in his sermon. He says, look, don't grumble against each other. Don't be that. You guys need each other to get through these hard times. You need the strength of the group. You need the strength of your congregation. Don't tear the congregation apart when things are hard. Okay, I kind of did this out of order, uh, a little bit on purpose. Go back to chapter 1. I want you to look at one more section of chapter 1 that I think is relevant to this sermon that I think James probably preached many different versions of to the Jerusalem church and to other churches. James 1, look at verses 21 through 25. Therefore... Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says, it's like someone who looks in a mirror. Then afterwards, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. That's a perseverance passage, and it's a specific kind of perseverance passage. It's a perseverance passage. It's about obeying what you know the Word of God says to do. It's about not just saying one time, oh yeah, I think I'll try that. It's about saying over and over again in your life, I'm going to put myself under the training of the Word of God. This morning, I was, as often happens, almost late to church. And I was rushing out the door. And I put my tie around my neck. I saw that in the mirror. If I didn't have time to tie it, I said, well, I'll tie it on the way. And of course, on the way, 
I was thinking about all the grand things I was going to try and say in my sermon, and I was thinking about all the important points that I needed to make, and I thought about those, and I kind of went over them in my mind, and when I stepped out of my car out here in the parking lot, still totally untied. I happened to catch a glimpse in my outside rearview mirror and saw it hanging out. And so I remembered to tie it, or I would have walked in and Brother Spinks would have had to tie it for me. That's an interesting image that James gives. He says, the word of God is like a mirror for us, but it only serves its purpose if we, if we determine day after day to do what it says. It can show us what we're like, but only if we're willing to put it into practice, only if we're willing to actually do what it says. And there are several things about that that are powerful and good. I think the Word of God is obviously the written Word of God, the Bible. But I think the Word of God acts like our mirror in a number of different ways. I think if I'm doing my job, at least some of what you're hearing from me is the Word of God. Hopefully it's from the Scriptures. If the elders are doing their job, if if the Bible teachers here are doing it, if you guys are doing your jobs with each other, then we are feeding the Word of God to each other. And that's part of how we learn what we are and what it is that God wants from us and what kind of people that we are meant to be. Why can't I just figure out what I'm supposed to be? Why do I need this something outside of me showing me what I'm really like? Why can't I just figure it out? Most of the self-help books that I can point you to in the bookstores, most of the self-help websites that we can go to on Google, that's pretty much their plan. They say these are things that will, you, you, know, you can do to make your life better. The Bible says part of the problem is that sin has messed you up. You need something from outside of you to help you understand what you really are. This is a painful thing to say. James believed it. He got it from the Old Testament. He believed it still continued in the regime of Jesus. Human beings, under the fall, under sin, have an enormous capacity to fool themselves. We have, because of sin, because of the buildup of sin over the generations, we have an enormous capacity to rationalize away, to excuse away the things that we're doing that are offensive to God and harmful to ourselves and hurtful to the people around us. We just have enormous ability to do it. And God has done this amazing, gracious thing by putting his revelation into our lives. By giving us the word of God and also implanting the word of God in us so that we actually, to the extent we're willing to follow what Scripture says, to the extent we're willing to, lead, to follow where the word of God is leading us, we actually have God helping us to get out of the hole that sin has dug for us and that we have put ourselves in.
James says, when you see what the Word of God is asking you to do, go out and do it and persist in that. And that's what leads to righteousness. When I was a kid, we had different times. We had different horses. My older sister was actually really good with horses. I was good enough to go and feed them oats, but I wasn't good enough to ride the really good horses. I can see Teresa and Elena both sneering at me right now, but it was the truth. It's the tr- I just wasn't good enough. I didn't have the right skills. They let me ride a pony, a Welch pony. It was a big pony. It looked big to me. And this pony was so old and so broken down that I couldn't do any harm to it. And so I would ride and accompany my sister on her rides with the really high-strung quarter horse that she rode. And this pony was very sluggish uh, whenever we were pointed away from the barn. The only time it showed any life at all was when I finally would let it head back towards the barn. And then I could just go, I, you know, I could just take my hands off the reins if I wanted to. It knew exactly what to do from that point on. It knew exactly every street that we'd turn, every path all the way back to where its feed trough was. I actually think, <laughs> this is weird, but I actually think that you need to obey the Word of God so often and so habitually that it becomes like that for you. Second nature. That's just built into you. Of course, the first few times that you obey the Word of God and do what it says, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be different. It's going to be the opposite of what sin has been telling you to do. It's it's the opposite of what's been programmed into you by the world. But eventually... In area after area in your life, the way you speak to those people who have made you angry, the way that you treat the people that are closest to you, the way that you talk about issues that relate to morality and truth and justice, all of those things, the more you will obey what the Word of God says, then eventually that will be the natural thing that comes out of you. That will be the natural thing that you're programmed to do. That will be the natural thing that just flows forth. You'll be trained by God's Word. Not just God's Word on the page, but God's Word implanted in your heart. And you will persevere until you receive the crown of life i got a few other sermons that I think we can get from James's book, but that's the one for tonight. If you need to respond to the invitation uh, that God makes possible through Jesus Christ, if you need prayers or if you need to receive baptism and you want to take that step tonight, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.